Good morning. Grab your Bibles and head to Exodus chapter 28. We're going to be looking at Exodus 28 and 29 together today. So we're going to go through two chapters. We're going to be looking at God as he's giving the instructions to Moses about the garments for the priests and the consecration ceremony for the priests. So they're going to do this later, but they're going to give the instructions now. And we're going to study this now as we look at this. And I know that as we start going through Exodus and we say, hey, we're going to work through a book of the Bible that some of y'all were like, I'm really looking forward to kind of hearing the, the 10 plagues. And some of you were like, I, I, I'm kind of interested to see how we talk through what happens with the golden calf. And I know that some of y'all were like, I want to talk about those priestly garments. Well, today is your day. We're talking about priestly garments today, so uh, I hope that you are ready uh, as we go through this. One of the things that we see in the Bible is that God is preparing since eternity past for what he's going to accomplish in Christ, and he's working this out in the story of human history and he's got all of these things that he's putting in place that ultimately get fulfilled in Jesus. And there are some movies that uh, have been very popular where there's this kind of twist ending, this surprise ending. So um, Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes was like this. It had a surprise ending that was startling for people, or maybe the, the usual suspects. Two of, the, two of the best ones that I've seen that I really appreciated were The Sixth Sense and Shutter Island had this twist ending. And the twist in those, what made it particularly good was that you were like, oh, it made a lot of things make sense. Some things you were like, I should, I should have seen that coming. I should have kind of known that was, and when they went back and showed it, and so if you watch the movie the second time, it's a completely different movie. You're seeing all this stuff that you didn't see the first time. And that is a lot of how the New Testament treats the Old Testament. The Old Testament informs the New Testament, but the New Testament looks back at the Old Testament and says, see, it's like you're watching a friend who's just super geeked out about the sixth sense and they pause it every 30 seconds and go, see, do you see what, okay, now look, do you see how, the, he, do you see the way his eyes went? That's because that's what the, old, the New Testament does with the Old Testament. They're, they're constantly going, do you see how God was doing this? Do you see how he was accomplishing this? And one of the main things that they point out is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood, that he is the high priest. That's what Hebrews goes out of its way to clearly articulate repeatedly. Jesus is our high priest. He fulfills this. So as we read this this morning, we're going to pause it and we're going to stop and we're going to say, do you see Jesus here? Do you see how this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus? Because there's some interesting things that go into the garment, the clothing that the priests are going to wear. So as we start this morning, I want to read from Hebrews 3. Before we get into Exodus 28, here's Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, that's church family, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to consider Jesus the high priest of our confession. That as Christians, he's our high priest. So as we learn about the inauguration of the priesthood, we're going to consider Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll do that together. Father, we thank you for your fulfillment of your promises, and that what we have in Christ is infinitely, eternally better than what you gifted to your people of Israel, that you have accomplished 
what we're going to read today, you've accomplished in Christ for us. So may we delight in the fulfillment of these things, and may we worship you as we study them together. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 28. God's talking to Moses, and he says, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Now, a priest is someone who stands in between God and the people. So, to be a priest in this role, at times the priest would stand representing God to the people, and then at times the priest would stand representing the people to God. But he's a mediator, he's an intermediary. And so that's what this role of a priest is, is someone who's in between God and the people. And so he says this is going to be given to Aaron and his sons. Ultimately, it's going to be given to the whole tribe of Levi to be Levitical priesthood, which is where they're, the tribe they're from. But Aaron and his sons are going to be the line of high priests, and it's given to them. So we're going to talk first about as we look at these garments, we're going to see the representation of the priest representing God to the people. As he stands in the middle and faces the people on behalf of God, we're going to look at some of the indications of that in the way that the garments are made. So verse 2, And you shall make holy garments for you, Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. Now this is interesting because that word glory is used throughout the book of Exodus, and it is used to describe God and his glory and the glory that he's going to get from what he does and the glory that he has in his person and himself, the glory that's displayed on the mountain. And then it's used in two places to describe the clothing that will be given to the priests. And so in a way, God is sharing some of his glory with the priesthood. That they're to have a bit of glory as they represent God to the people. That the priesthood is going to stand in, in a way, to represent him. And he's going to make them garments specifically for their glory. Now, if they had done this on their own, it would have been bad. If they were like, you know what? I want some glorious garments. I'm going to elevate myself. I'm going to be the fanciest person. I'm, it, that would be bad. That would be frowned upon. But when God says, no, I'm intentionally doing this, they're going to have special garments for glory and for beauty as they stand in to represent him. And it says this, you shall, verse three, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Consecrate means to set aside, to place him in this role. These are the garments that they shall make, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. Now, an ephod is translating the word ephod, much like our word taco. Taco means taco. Ephod means ephod. It's this special garment given to the priesthood. So if you were like, I kind of understand some of these things. I got an idea of what a turban is. What's an ephod? An ephod is going to be explained to us because it's a special garment that goes here with the high priest. So, it says, verse 5, They shall receive gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linens. Here are the glorious garments they're going to make. It's going to look something like that. Huh? That thing in the middle there is the breast piece. The ephod is the thing that is uh, woven, multicolored around it. Um or that hangs underneath it. 
But they're going to make this, and it's intentionally designed with a bunch of imagery that I think, because, because God knows what he's doing and ultimately Jesus is going to fulfill this, there's a bunch of images that go into this that ultimately point to the finished work of Christ. Now, he is dressed like a walking tabernacle. That phrase that we just read, receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. We're going to read that over and over again, but we already read it over and over again when they were making the tabernacle. That this is how they made the covering of the tabernacle and the inside veil in between the holy place and the most holy place. And so he's dressed up to look like the tabernacle. And I don't think that's on accident. That if the tabernacle is the place where God meets earth, where he's going to put his footstool, where he's going to be present in a a particular specific way, then the priesthood is also going to represent him. So if the tabernacle is a representation of him meeting with the earth, then the priesthood, the high priest is, is a walking representation of that. And those are some of the things that help us understand that he's intentionally set up to be leading and standing in between God and the people. That's, it's used in uh, Exodus 21, verse 6, Exodus 26, verse 31. So he's dressed for glory and for beauty in a way that looks like the tabernacle. But he's also giving a breast piece of judgment. And so we're going to read about that. Look at verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it, of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linens. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And this is gold filigree. Well, yeah, there it is. So they're going to have two stones with the names of the sons of Israel encased in that on his shoulders. And that's pretty. All right, keep going. Verse 12, And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Verse 13 and 14, we're going to talk about how to attach it. Let's move to verse 15. You shall make a breast piece of judgment. So he's going to have this breast piece of judgment. That's that square thing you saw. In skilled work, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. This is a span. Tip of your thumb, pinky. A span, cubits, tip of your fingy, fingy, finger. <laughs> Did I say fingy twice? That's awesome. This is a finger. Elbow. Nailed it. All right. I didn't hear it till the second time. I might have just moved on with my life and not known I did that. All right. <laughs> All right. Shouldn't have told y'all what a span is. Okay, verse 17. You shall set it in four rows of stones. Then it's going to talk about how the stones are, what stones to use. In verse 21, it says, There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. So there's two stones, six names on each shoulder. And then there's a breast piece that has 12 stones with engraved names of each tribe. 
Then it's going to take some time to tell you how to attach it so it doesn't fall off, and then go down to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And we're going to talk about this bringing them to remembrance in a minute. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And we'll talk about that again in a second, that he's bearing their judgment. But the Urim and the Thummim are specifically given to the high priest to discern the will of God. They consult Urim and Thummim to understand God's will. So this breastpiece of judgment is not just bearing judgment, but it's also making judgment, that you would bring someone to the high priest. So in Exodus 22, it says that if someone borrows some property and then it ends up gone, that you then would bring them before God, bring them near to God, and whatever God decided would tell you whether or not they had stolen. And there's just some questions there as to, like, how did they do that? Well, most likely they did that with Urim and Thummim, where the high priest would use Urim and Thummim to understand God's will. Now, we don't know how Urim and Thummim worked. We can outline, we can trace out a few things, and we'll walk through that, but anything that tells you this is exactly how they worked is some speculation because we really don't know. But what we do know is enough to know uh, how they worked, and we have enough to know what we need to know. So they would use this to make judgments. Ezra 2, we see this. It says, The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim, that they would go before God and ask questions, and that Urim and Thummim would help them know a judgment from God. As Moses is handing over the reins of leadership to Joshua in Numbers 27, it says, And he, that's Joshua, shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. So even though Joshua is going to lead the nation, he would still go to the priest to understand what they were supposed to do, to answer questions about God's will and God's desire for them. This is still going when Saul's king in 1 Samuel 14 it says, therefore, Saul said, there's a dispute between him and his army. And he says, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me, that was answered in, uh, they, they lost the battle. Said, if this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. So it's some way of casting lots, of discerning truth, of finding reality, empowered by God. But it's not as simple as like flipping a coin, because in 1 Samuel 26, it says, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Which means there's a way for you to use Urim and Thummim and get no answer for God to not respond. So it can't be flipping a coin, just right or left, yes or no, because that always would give an answer. So that's about all we have. We know they used it. We know that God specified it and that God empowered this for judgment. Now, some of you, as we were talking through that, might have thought, that's crazy. They made decisions by like rolling some dice. And some of you might have thought, that sounds wonderful. Can we do that? Can I just get some dice and be like, all right, if it's a seven, I take the job. 
And the answer to the first person is, that's not crazy, because it was God's specific given way to discern his will that he empowered. So he gave this as a gift to his people of of Israel and specifically to the priesthood to make judgments on behalf of the people by God, that God would make these judgments for them. So it was an empowered gift given to them for them to be able to discern God's will. And to the second person, no, we can't make decisions like that. First of all, because this was only given to the high priest, not as just a way that everybody got to make decisions. And secondly, that's not the means by which we are given to make decisions. We, are, we have something so much better. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit and been given the church. That the church collectively, where Jesus says, where two or more of you are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you, and whatever you bind on earth is bound, and whatever you loose is loose. This, this gift given to the church that we might collectively make decisions so that you're empowered by the Spirit and that you can walk under the guidance of the Spirit, but you also get your church family to help make decisions, to help discern the will of God. And so that is how we are designed to make these decisions. But we see in him having this judgment that God was empowering the high priest to stand in his stead and to render judgments based off of God's will. And so the high priest stood representing God to the people. Now, pause. Jesus fulfills this beautifully, infinitely more. Because he's not a walking representation of the tabernacle. He's not just a a representation of God. He is God himself. This is what Hebrews 1 says. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's not just shared a little bit in the clothing he wears. He's the display of God's glory as seen in Christ. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So that where he, the, uh, the high priest would wear uh, clothes made of the same stuff as the tabernacle, that Jesus is made of the same stuff. He's the same exact imprint. He is God, not just a representation of God. He is God who has come to redeem and to work on our behalf. And so that our high priest is not a person who's a stand-in, and we hope he does his best, but he is God who has come to redeem and to work on our behalf. It says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so our high priest, Christ, is God. He's not some sort of representation, but he has fully and completely accomplished this. But the high priest didn't just represent God to the people, but he also represented the people to God. And you'll see this. We already read some of this, but look back at verse 12. It says, You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then in verse 29, it says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So the high priest wears the names of the tribes of Israel before God to bring them to remembrance and to bear their judgment. So that if you were in the tribe of Reuben, or if you were in the tribe of Simeon, or if you were in the tribe of Benjamin, that you knew that the high priest, when he went in before God, took you with him, that he represented you before God in his sacrifices and in his offerings, that you were covered too. And I It doesn't tell us why the names are on him twice. 
says he's going to have their names on their shoulders for remembrance, and he's going to have the names on his heart for remembrance and for judgment. But when I consider Jesus, I think it's beautiful that he carries us in the same way. He carries us in his heart that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he carries judgment for us, but he also carries our weight. He bears our guilt, that he carries the cross on his shoulders to Calvary, that he takes with us, takes our sin with him, and takes us with him when he represents us before God. So that we have a high priest who carries you. If you belong to Jesus, your name is written and it is carried before the Lord, and you are atoned for and cared for. As uh, John says in 1 John, that he wrote these things that we might not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have someone who's standing before the Father right now that bears our names before him to forgive us, to be our propitiation for our sins. So that our high priest does this as well. Verse 31 you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Now, I think if I was Aaron, and Moses was walking me through this, and he was like, oh, and around the hymn, there's going to be a pomegranate, and then a bell, and then a pomegranate, and then a bell, I'd be like, all right, cool. And then he'd say, and the bells are going to make noise when you walk, right, yeah, yeah, so that you don't die. And now let me tell you about the turban. I think I'd have been like, wait. Go back to the bells part. But you see, Aaron and Moses understood that Aaron and all the high priests are doing dangerous holy work because they're sinners. And sinners don't just get to be in the presence of God. This would be a very real thing to consider that, that you don't get to just uh, uh, presume to be in the presence of God. But I think it's really interesting that woven into the hem of this garment is pomegranates and bells. I'm going to show you all. This is a pomegranate. I had to look it up. I didn't know what pomegranates looked like. That's a pomegranate. It's red. I think it's about the size of like an orange. It's, uh, that's not to scale. That's way bigger than they are in real life. It is full of seeds. Just full of them. And so a pomegranate is a promise of life and blessing and fruitfulness that it holds this promise of God fulfilling his promises, that he's going to bless them, that he's going to multiply them, that he's going to provide for them, that there's something good to come. It's got seeds. It's all these promises that are held inside of it. And so in his garment, he has promise of blessing and life and fruitfulness right next to a bell that clangs, reminding him of his sinfulness and the danger that he has when he approaches God. And I think that's, Beautiful. He walks around with the Garden of Eden, a, a place of promise and beauty and God's desire to love humans and to bless them, and also the place of our greatest failure, where sin enters the world and we're up for destruction. And y'all, Jesus has that woven into his person, blessing and life and fruitfulness and the fulfillment of promises. And he carries our sin and our guilt and our death 
in him. When we get into eternity, we will be unmarked by sin, but Jesus won't. Jesus carries in his resurrected body the scars on his hands and on his side. That when John sees him in the book of Revelation and they declare, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John says, I looked, but what I saw was a lamb that looked like he'd been slain. That our high priest carries life and death in himself as well. Blessing and fruitfulness and promise and hope. But also a reminder of the sinfulness that would separate us from God. Verse 36 You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that he may be accepted before the Lord. So the high priest is going to carry the people on his shoulders and on his heart. He's going to carry the judgment of God on his heart. He's going to carry their guilt on his forehead. And he's going to have pomegranates and bells around the hem of his clothing. And so when the author of Hebrews says, he's our high priest, we get to look and go, yeah, he's done that. That he bears our guilt before the Lord, that he carries us in remembrance before the Lord, that he carries in himself life and our death as he has conquered death so that we might be able to conquer death in him, that he carries promise and hope and fulfillment and resurrection, and that he brings us before the Lord in hope, just as the people of Israel would be able to look to their high priest and see the work that he was doing and trust that God was allowing it to work, we get to look to our high priest, our high priest and know that God has blessed and worked as well. In verses 39 through 43, it's going to talk about the clothes that will be made for Aaron's sons and the undergarments that they will have to wear, all taking into consideration the unholiness of the priests, which leads us to, okay, but how does this priest get to go be in the presence of God? And that's where chapter 29 comes in. He's going to be consecrated. He's going to be set apart for it. There's going to be sacrifices made on behalf of the priests. And so God's going to tell Moses how to go about that. So we're going to read the first part of Exodus 29. We're going to read the first part and the last part, and I'll explain the middle. Chapter, uh, chapter 29, verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. If you read in the Old Testament and animals are introduced, do not get emotionally attached to them. This is a pro tip. And unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and you shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So the first thing they're going to do is be washed with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And then they're going to bring the sons and do the same thing. And it says the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Uh, sorry, they're going to dress them in their clothes. They're not going to pour anointing, pour anointing oil on the, on the sons. So they don't do exactly the same thing. 
But it says there, the priesthood should be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. They're going to set them apart. And then they're going to lay their hands on the head of the bull and sacrifice the bull. And they're going to place the blood of the bull on the corners of the altar, the horns of the altar, and then they're going to put the blood against the altar to atone for the altar. Then they're going to burn up parts of the bull and burn up the rest of the bull outside the camp as a sin offering. They're going to take the sin out and they're going to burn it up to help atone for them and to mark the altar as holy. Then they're going to take the first ram, lay their hands on its head, which is signifying that they're passing their sin over to it, that this lamb is, lamb, this ram is representing them, and then that ram will be sacrificed and burned as a burnt offering to the Lord, and they'll see the smoke ascend up to the Lord. Just as Jesus ascends up to the Lord, the smoke ascends up to the Lord in a pleasing fashion to him. And then they're going to take the third ram, place their hands on its head, and it will atone for their sin as well. Some parts of it they will burn, some parts of it they will cook, and they will partake in a meal. And it says they will eat of the ram that atoned from them. And I'm reminded of something that we do quite often as we read through that, that Jesus Christ dies for our sins, and then he says, if you don't partake in me, then you have no part with me. And he says that you will, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you. And one of the things that we do is we partake in Jesus our sacrificial lamb who atoned for us. And we remind ourselves that we are welcomed in by what he has done, and that's what they do. They kill this ram, then they partake, they eat a meal before the Lord. Then they go through a ceremony that lasts seven days with evening and morning sacrifices, and then God says that these evening and morning sacrifices are going to continue forever, that that's what they're going to do. They're going to have an evening and morning sacrifice, evening and morning sacrifice. Go to verse 42. Oh, Sorry. The ram that they eat, they put blood on their ears, blood on their thumbs, and blood on their uh, big toe on their right side, and they sprinkle blood all over them. So they are covered in the blood of this ram that has atoned for their sin. And this is a picture of the fact that their sin deserves death. They are covered in the blood. This is why we sing songs about blood, that we're washed in the blood, we're covered in the blood, because this is what Jesus has done for us, that he has washed us clean, set us apart, and paid for and atoned for our sins by his blood. And they did this with a ram. So they're covered in blood, and then they eat a meal um, together. Verse 42. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them, I am the Lord their God. If you were an Israelite at this time, you could look to the tabernacle, you could look to the smoke rising in the morning and the smoke rising in the evening, and you could trust that there was a high priest there representing you before God and that your sins were being atoned for. That you could see this and trust. But the sacrifice had to happen again the next day. It had to continue to happen, that he had to continue to, to go before the Lord and, and receive this sacrifice and this hope that had to happen over and over and over again through all their generations. This had to happen. But you could trust that the high priest was placed there by God, that God was accepting the sacrifice, that he was representing you before God, bearing your guilt, carrying your judgment, bringing your name in remembrance, and you could watch as this happened over and over and over and over again. 
And Christians, we get to look to Christ. The fulfillment of all these things who has perfectly accomplished our forgiveness. I want you to see this. This is Hebrews 10, and this is where we're going to end. We're going to end in Hebrews 10, and we're going to take some of the conclusions that the author of the Hebrews draws from us having Jesus as our high priest, and we're going to consider them as we finish up this morning. Hebrews 10, 11, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So they can help pay for sin short term, but they have to happen again tomorrow, and they can never take it away. They can't fix the problem. So while this was a blessing to the people of Israel and a reminder of God's love and presence that he was doing all this so that he might dwell with them, they never fixed the problem. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is, we talked about this earlier this year when we talked about the ascension. But that Jesus Christ dies on the cross, he's buried. On the third day, he rises, and then he ascends into heaven, and he takes a seat because he has perfected once for all time those who are being sanctified. He has fixed the problem of sin. He has, does not have a need to do this repeatedly, and this is wonderful. This is why Protestants, when you look at a cross, Jesus isn't on it because he's not there. He's seated at the right hand of God. The work is finished. When you see an empty cross, you get to be reminded that this isn't a, a work that has to be renewed for you, but that it has been accomplished. There is no smoke rising up daily. It's been accomplished. That we get to trust in the finished work of Jesus who has seated at the right hand of God, who has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We have a wonderful, glorious high priest. Move down to verse uh, 18. It says, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, so because of this, since we have, a, since we have first thing, confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, the only person in the Old Testament who had confidence to enter into the holy places was the high priest. The priest could go with him into the holy place, but never could go into the most holy place. Only the priest could do that. But he says in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, that we now, because of the work of Jesus, are welcomed in. It's the first thing. It says, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then he's going to tell us, because of those two things, because we get to walk in like a high priest, and since we have a great high priest, then he's going to give us some conclusions. So I want to, to try to help us. What do we do with this? Other than see how glorious Jesus is and how much better he is as a high priest, what do we do with this? How do we respond? And since the author of Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest, let's do these things, I thought, hey, let's do those things. So you're welcome. We're going to read those three things quickly to see what we're supposed to do with the fact that Jesus is our high priest and that he's made a way for us to enter. Verse 22, let us draw near 
with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The consecration ceremony of the priests was that they would be washed and then they would be sprinkled with blood. And in our faith in Christ, we've been covered by his blood and we walk that out in baptism. And what he says is, you've been consecrated to enter into the presence of God. You've been set apart so that you might enter into the presence of God. And so he says, with confidence and full assurance, do that. Pray with confidence and full assurance. Not pride because it's not based in you. It's confidence because it's based in Christ. So with confidence and full assurance, go walk in, speak to the Lord, relate to him, love him. That's the first thing that we should do. We should have full assurance because it's worked out in Christ and that we've been consecrated and set apart by the gospel. The second thing he says is let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What's the confession of our hope? It's that Jesus has accomplished this. It's Jesus has worked this out on our behalf. Our hope is in him. And it says the reason we can hold fast to this is that he who promised is faithful. I grew up in the um, Aiken, North Augusta, Edgefield area of South Carolina, and there's a drag strip in Jackson where buddies of mine would go drag race. And if you went to the drag race and sat in the car And let's say, I don't know if they let you have passengers, but this is imaginary. So imagine that you get to be a passenger. Let's say I'm the passenger in one of my buddy's cars, and we're about to race somebody. And the guy next to us is revving his car because he's cool, and you're supposed to do that. So he's doing that. And I look at my friend who's about to drive, and I say, I just don't know. I just don't know if I can do this. He says, we got this. And I say, I just don't know if I'm fast enough. My friend would look at me like I was stupid. Because that has nothing to do with what we're doing. I don't have to run. I'm pretty sure we're disqualified if I get out of the car. I don't even know if I'm allowed to be in the passenger seat. We've already established that. This isn't a foot race, and I'm not driving. It's based off the car and this person driving. And when we as Christians at times say things like, I just don't know because I'm in sin. I just don't know because I'm struggling. I just don't know I have these doubts. What does that have to do with it? He who promised is faithful. We just get to sit in the passenger seat. It's based off of our confession of hope, which is Christ and what he has accomplished. If we were in the tribe of Reuben and I looked at you and just said, I just don't know if I'm going to be a good high priest, you'd say, bro, I don't think you have to worry about that. You're, you're not, you're not gonna, so we're good. And so when we at times go, I just don't know, I just, yo, we have a great high priest who has opened the way. We get to hold fast to our confession and we get to do this with full assurance because it's not based off of us. And when we walk with confidence and when we hold fast our hope and when we do it with full assurance, we give great glory to Christ. Because we magnify his work, not ours. And our trust and our hope is in him, not us.
So because we have a great high priest, sleep well at night. Repent of sin with delight that he forgives and walk in confidence that you're okay. Not because you're great. That's not the point. You don't walk in confidence because you're well-behaved. You walk in confidence because Jesus forgives sinners and you have a great high priest who has perfected once for all those who are being sanctified. The third thing he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I find that so interesting. He says, because we have a great high priest and because we get to enter in, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. It's not about our love and good works. It's not accomplished by us, but let us consider this. And y'all, do we do that? Do you give intentional thought and effort to how to stir up your brothers and sisters in Christ towards love and good works? With your community group, before you're going over there to spend time with them, before your group meeting time, before y'all gonna go get dinner together, do you think, how can I stir them up? to love Jesus more, to, to go about accomplishing good works. If we're honest, I think more often we give consideration not about what they're getting from us, but what we're getting from them. That we might more often think, I just don't, I mean, I just don't know what I'm getting out of that. No, we're to consider what they're getting from us. We're to consider how we might encourage and build up and drive them on. He says this, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together. If we're going to consider and be, give effort towards stirring one another up to love and good works, you know what you have to do to, to, to stir one another up? Be around one another. And so if you've gotten in the habit of being around on Sundays once a month or hanging out with your group every third time or every other time or when it's, you've had a long day and it's tiring and you're frustrated and you're just thinking, I just don't know if I want to do that right now. I don't think you're considering how to stir them up. I think you're considering how it applies to you. And I think we're forgetting and neglecting to make this a regular habit that we're around God's people because we have a great high priest who works on our behalf so that we might walk in love and good works behind him. And he says, all the more, as you see the day drawing near. We ought to outpace the New Testament believers in stirring one another up and in encouragement because the day is nearer to us than it was to them. And there is a day, there is a day when we stand before the king, washed of our sins, covered by his blood, and welcomed eternally because we have a great high priest who's entered in before us. And may we praise his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for surprisingly, shockingly fulfilling what you had intended to do since eternity past, to, rec to, res to rescue and redeem sinners. And Lord, may we walk with confidence because of your sacrifice and your glory, and may we draw near in hope to the praise of your name. Amen. The band's going to come back up and we're going to sing. And then as we leave, may we leave as people who draw near in full assurance, who cling tightly to the hope of the gospel, unwavering because Jesus is faithful, and who give real effort and intentionality to being around and stirring one another up.